age of artificial intelligence is upon us. As AI permeates our world, many are forecasting transformational impacts on work and the economy. With AI, the future is highly uncertain, but it's imperative that we prepare workers to the best of our ability today. In this episode of Hardly Working, we bring you a live event with Brent and Shane Tews, non-resident senior fellow at AEI and head of AEI's tech policy team, on the intersection of AI, skills, and the workforce. Here, Brent and Shane speak to AEI's 2023 Summer Honor students and offer advice on how future workers like them can thrive in an AI-driven world. I'm David, producer at Hardly Working and a research assistant for Brent. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Brett and I got together yesterday. We were like, we're doing a joint podcast. How's this going to go? So um, so I run the Tech Policy Center for um, AEI, which is a little unique in that most of our scholars are actually non-residents. So they're ac- mostly academics around the United States. Just myself and Claude Barfield are here in um, Washington. But if you ever have any questions about the work we're doing, please feel free to email, text, however you want to get a hold of me. And it's an honor to get to do this today with Brent. I don't know how it's going to work as a dual podcast, but we'll figure that out. (laughs) And likewise, I mean, uh, uh, I am not a technologist. I just play one here at AEI. (laughs) So um, this is a great dialogue for us to have, though, because uh, as you heard in the introduction, I'm mostly in the workforce development side, thinking about jobs and skills and uh, opportunities for training and advancement in the workforce. And that is largely a technological, in, in many ways, largely a technological question. So. so I think the first question is if you agree with me that the biggest challenge for artificial intelligence is that they called it artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it, uh, yeah, I, I think there's something to that because uh, we have all been weaned um, on Hollywood movies in which computers take over the world and, and kill us. China. Yeah, uh, and that's been, that's not new. That's like, that's a, that's been a theme in kind of human experience for millennia. You know, as long as, as humans have been creating more and more sophisticated technologies, somebody always looks at that new technology and says, that's gonna kill us. Um, and, uh, so it's not new, it's a perennial. Yeah. I think we might deserve it, but that's another topic for another day. <laughs> um, so since uh, I can talk about technology ad nauseum all day long, I thought it made sense. Brent was like, do you mind if I do a few slides? And I said, sure, that will give us something to focus on and give more of a purpose to the artificial intelligence conversation. So let's start, let's, let's get started. Okay, okay, let's look at these slides. AI and a new era of automation. We are of course, constantly in an era of automation, but this is one of those surges that we're going through right now uh, that's really going to accelerate um, uh, technology and its deployment in the economy that's going to trickle down into all of our lives, all of our, and when I say lives, I mean working lives. So uh, yeah, this first slide is, uh, I try, uh, in this slide, what I'm trying to do is to conceptualize how we ought to, as people, think about the future of work in the midst of incredible uncertainty, because that's the, that's the main challenge that we have. A lot of people in the workforce development field who want to, like, okay, we've got these workforce programs and they're training people and the results are kind of, you know, meh, not great. Uh, not terrible by any stretch of imagination, but just haven't, we haven't really seen huge results. But if we just 
you know, turn the dial on this program a little bit this way, and there's a dial over here, we're going to turn it a little bit that way, and we're going to get, and that's going to fix and make these programs work. That has never worked uh, in any, uh, in the, these programs date back to the 1930s in some cases. Uh, we keep adjusting them, and they keep not working. Um, so you take that situation, right, and then you say, let's put AI on top of all of, of, of that. Uh, and what do you get? Well, the answer is we don't know. And that is one of the hardest answers to have. Uncertainty um, is, is our biggest challenge. And so what can we be certain about? I think there's three things that we can be certain about. We can be certain that uh, the workforce is not growing as fast as it used to. That's baked into the cake. Um, unless we have a time machine that can take us back 40 years and encourage people to have more children in the past so that we have a larger population to have children today, uh, there's nothing to be done really about that in the, in the foreseeable future. So we have a smaller workforce relative to the size of the economy. It will be larger in absolute numbers, but smaller relative to the, to the economy. That can become a constraint on growth um, uh, because people are on both the supply side and the demand side, uh, indispensable. So what do we do about that? Well, uh, right now we're kind of worried that we, we're going to automate ourselves out of jobs. And I think it's at least as big a danger that we simply won't have enough people to do all the work that needs to be done. Because the history of automation is and technology is that it arrives, we panic, uh, it then moves out into the entire economy, and lo and behold, it makes everybody's life better, it makes us all richer, mostly, and it, uh, and it increases aggregate demand in the economy so that we have more demand for jobs, for workers. We may, our biggest problem may not be too much technology, but too little. Too, not too much automation, but too little automation in the context of a constrained labor force. So at an individual level, that doesn't solve your individual problem because I, if you came to me and said, what should I get trained on so I make sure I have a job, I couldn't answer that question. Uh, I might be able to tell you, like, today what you might need. I can't tell you what you need six months from now. I can't tell you what you need a year from now. So all I can say to you is that what you need is flexibility and adaptability to change. That's the, um, that's the master skill of the future. So just a, before you go to your next yeah. slide, uh, so I do a lot of work on uh, the whole broadband, how do we get America connected, and there was a big uh, Rose Garden ceremony what day is today? I guess it was Monday? Today's Wednesday. Uh, and what's so interesting is one of the questions when we look through all that is, the workforce pipeline, and this is actually not, this is not AI driven, this is just people. Like we really, all right, so we've made this decision that we're going to, we need to put everybody connected to the internet so we can all benefit from all the great things that the internet brings to bear and eventually everybody can be attached to some version of AI if they wish to be. And that means we need people, like, they have to dig ditches, we have to you know, create tranches so we can put the wire down. Once the wire's down, eventually in that process, you need somebody who's actually going to be able to maintain that. Some, once all of that is in place, it needs to go into a node. Once it goes into a node, it has to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there is all this money being flown out by the U.S. government, and it doesn't really have a plan on 
who's going to do the next layers of the work. So this is an ongoing theme that you will see in this space. And it's just fascinating to see where, where people, again, are so concerned that AI is going to come in and either A, kill them, or they're going to um, take away their job. And it's just the opposite. And it's just the work your, your team's doing is really fascinating in this yeah. area. So uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going out to Columbus, Ohio to give a talk. Uh, and while I'm there, we're going to do a planning session um, with some of the leaders in the Columbus area to talk about uh, how they are going to meet their not long-term labor demand, they're like short medium term because of these federal investments in chip manufacturing, which are not just generating jobs for chip technicians. It's every other kind of job that goes around that the process of, of construction, develop, development, construction, maintenance, uh, and then eventually staffing. But we don't have enough people to do any of that. Uh, Columbus is one of the fastest growing uh, uh, metropolitans in the, in the country in terms of job growth. They probably got a 2 3% unemployment rate. Where are they going to find the people um, is the biggest, the biggest question. And then if you actually have a body, how are you going to equip that person with skills that can get these projects done? Which gets us to training. I know you're going to eventually get there on yeah. the slide. So. Yeah. Um, this next slide is on the AI, uh, AI side. I love, love, love this chart. Okay. So um, the, the, uh, this is a chart of the performance of chat GPT-3, uh, 3.5, and 4 on various standardized tests. Um, everything from uh, uh, AP physics to uh, the the unified um, bar exam for attorneys. Okay, so they to test the ability of these large language models um, in terms of their uh, their sophistication in dealing with language based questions. This is what they did. They ran it. They ran the all the they had the they had the algorithm take the test, right? And so the dark blue lines are how it performed at the GPT three level. And the green lines are what happened three months later uh, when GPT-4 um, came online. And you can see just the massive increases in capability in, in a three-month, basically a three-month period. Now, of course, there's a lot of work going on simultaneously on three and four. And so it wasn't like, oh, we had three and then we built four. But... The point remains, the technology is advancing incredibly rapidly. Uh, and uh, the, the one, the red circle, uh, that's the law, uh, that's the uh, unif unified bar exam uh, performance. You know, if you, if I had a parking ticket, I'm not sure that I would want GPT-3 to represent me. However, GPT-4, all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, like this thing is performing at the highest levels uh, in terms of its ability, uh, its abilities um, in that area. But, and it's getting better in all of these areas. And we can expect that, I think, I don't know if you agree, Shane, but I, what's to prevent it from just getting better at this point? Oh, I love it. So how many people in the room have played with some version of this three or four 
Pretty much everybody. Good for you guys. Yeah. All right. Yeah. How about Bard? Has anybody played with Bard? All right. So I'll tell you what I love about Bard better than ChatGPT is that it's current. So where ChatGPT is still, uh, its last uh, learning language model was in 2021. If you're doing current research, I think, I think you just have to have a Gmail account. So just consider that. Uh, plus, it's also you can get into the Google Labs on it. But it's, it's amazing how much faster your learning cycle goes, which I think is something that uh, Brent and I both talked about is this concern that people think you're just cheating. And it's like it's not cheating. You're just getting smarter faster, and which is good for everybody in that space. So I'm glad to see that everybody has had a chance to play with this because I think it's amazing. And, and to the law firms, that baseline legal research where it's good to have a level of memorization, as we've all learned, like how many, as I call it the Google machine, like if I don't have to know everything of the Google machines available to me, right? You know, I can, I can leave certain data points back there because I can always reach into them. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see, and those of you who decide to go to law school, what your training element is going to be because you're not going to be like the regular summer associate who's just going to go down to the stacks and have to find regulation on airplane part, blah, blah, blah. This is all going to be presented to you and you're going to get in that faster learning cycle again. So that's a, a really interesting fact you brought mm. to our attention there. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, in, uh, on our team here at AEI, I've been forcing my research assistants to Forcing them. I think yeah. they're all enthusiastic about well, it. Well, they're, they're enthusiastic now. They weren't so enthusiastic when I said they had to do it. But Wait, now, could anybody be bummed if their, their boss was like, hey, would you mind jumping on chat GPT to get some stuff done? <laughs> really? Yeah. It feels like a betrayal, I think. Of, of, uh, <laughs> they of, stopped talking to you. They're yeah, like, you're not interesting anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So... Uh, let's see. What do we? Oh, say. Okay. So artificial intelligence. So the few bullet points on this. So that bar graph uh, is drawn from a study by the University of Pennsylvania and OpenAI uh, that they did together. And what they found in the study of the poten <clears throat> potential impacts of um, uh, large language model general uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, was that 80% of all jobs will have uh, will be affected by use of uh, chat GPT, 80%. So effectively, chances are pretty good, whatever you do in your life, it's, uh, if, you were, if you were in the job, it's going to change. Uh, if you're coming into the job, you're going to have to learn uh, that, and you're going to have to continue to adapt. Uh, and then 20% of all jobs are what's called fully exposed to AI, which means that uh, every aspect of the job itself could be automated based on the types of tasks that are in it. Um, uh, this, is a, this is an, an inversion of the pattern that we have seen around um, automation throughout the history of automation, which is typically automation hits at the, at the bottom of the educational uh, and, and, and skill uh, portfolio. It, it, it goes for, fact, it's gone for factory workers. It's gone for farmers. Uh, it's gone for people that uh, didn't have college and above education. ChatGPT does the exact opposite. Its, its biggest effects are going to be felt in professions with the highest levels of education and skill. Okay, that doesn't mean all the lawyers are going to be unemployed. I don't. I don't think that's the case. They're not going to be unemployed. They're going to be smarter. smarter they're going to be smarter. Better. They're going to be faster. They're going to do more. 
um, is what I think the effect is going to be of that. But it is going to impose a steep cognitive cost on attorneys, especially people who are mid-career attorneys, to learn. Uh, and that's hard. You know, asking people to learn that much, that it can, it can be a real bummer when you're in your mid-50s and somebody says, you have to learn something completely new that you've been, it's not been part of your environment. It's not been part of your, uh, of your uh, professional experience prior to that. Being very technical in my thought process, yeah. I think of it as an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone and I'll think, wow, that person needs an upgrade. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you're saying, I get it, somebody in their 50s, it's not that hard. We can slowly train them to just get back to l learning a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's better and I'm really, I'm glad everybody raised their hands that they've, they've been messing with it. You should also be looking at the, I mean, I, I get like several lists a day with dozens of new tools. I would be scrutinizing those tools for things that you think might be applicable to your area of interest. So that you, you can usually use them for free for a little while, but like try it out. Um, and, and experiment with it um, because you need to get into that stream now. You don't want to wait six months or a year. You want to get into it now and start exploring, swimming around in this new um, ocean of technology so that you, you have that level of comfort that you need um, and in terms of, yeah, I can, I can do this. I'm not, I'm not completely incompetent. Uh, I published a piece. I'm pretty today. sure you're not in contact. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, I published a piece today uh, in the Bulwark about this very question, or uh, it's partly addressing this question. <clears throat> the last line of it is, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed intern is king. So if you are new to the workforce, but you know something about this technology, people are going to think you're a genius. You're all of the people above you who are mostly avoiding learning how to do it. All right, so challenge to the audience. Anybody who's got a favorite thing that they are working with that they like and think is valued and their colleagues would learn from it, you can send it to me or you can send it to Jake, who's our project manager, and just give me a one sentence or a little paragraph on why you like it. Because I'd love to see what other people are working on. Because it's easy to do what gets in the paper, but it's also interesting to see what other people are working on. So let us know. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, uh, okay. So the jobs most impacted, uh, finance, accounting, insurance, data processing, least exposed are production services, things like logging, manufacturing, uh, not so much uh, uh, impact on those. Um, uh, interestingly, like food production and delivery and health and social assistance also not heavily impacted by AI because they are more human intensive um, kinds of activities. Uh, all of this, please, everything that I say, put an asterisk next to it in your mind and say, for now, because the way that the technology is developing, it's going to, whatever we say today uh, could change. Um, so, uh, but, so we say, okay, so it's these knowledge workers who are most exposed. But a, a study came out just last week that uh, looked at the employment effects of AI uh, in professions. So not, uh, not mechanics, but people who are in um, the law or accounting or whatever. And what they found in this study was that 
those, the number of people working in those jobs has increased, not decreased. And I think that that's the aggregate demand effect that I was talking about, which is as you're able to do more, create more business, you create more demand, you need more people. Um, so are those knowledge tasks in the, and service uh, sector tasks that are exposed to AI, are they going to be affected by it? Yes, but we don't know exactly what the effect is going to be. It could be to increase the demand for some of those jobs. So stay tuned. So what do you do uh, in that? This is the uncertainty thing I was talking about. What do you do in such an uncertain environment? And I think uh, uh, Dr. Doom, Nuriel Rubini, how many of you have heard of that guy? Nuriel, Nuriel Rubini. Okay, he's the one who in 2007 said, we're going to have a financial disaster. And then it happened. Uh, and he was, so he's, that's how he got the, uh, the, the moniker of Dr. Doom. And I heard him talking about this recently. And they asked him, well, I mean, given all this uncertainty, what is, what's your advice? And he said, uh, same advice that I give to my financial clients, you need to hedge. So if hedge for your risk. So if you are pursuing education in the humanities, the arts, uh, you know, non-technical fields, and that's where the way you're built, then what you need to do is to build up skill sets on the other side um, and uh, learn, you know, take classes in science and chemistry and physics and computer science and all, you know, you need a balanced portfolio, as he calls it a portfolio approach to education and training, um, so that you can adapt um, to a changing work environment. So wherever you're strongest, don't just keep doing the thing that you're strong on. Look for the, your areas of weakness and try to build those, um, those areas up. Did you have any? Well, no, my, just, <laughs> I think that's very good advice, but I was thinking to myself, as you get older, I just call that staffing. <laughs> <laughs> Things I'm not good at. Can I pay them? Yeah. Yeah, and then I move on. Yeah. Okay, so um, that brings us to, all right, so what does this balancing or, or hedging look like? The way that we approach education and training in this country from a workforce standpoint is that we put most of our time, money, effort, attention uh, at the top of the skills pyramid to equip people with technical skills um, that they can that that are easier to translate directly into economic outcomes. Uh, we don't spend uh, we spend a lot of time on basic skills in you know grammar school, junior high, high school, uh, learning math and reading that. And then we've got, at the bottom level, this, these non-cognitive skills. And that's what I want to, want to focus your attention on. These are, when you add them all together, these are the kind of skills that add up to the capacity to learn, right? They are communication, uh, collaboration, critical thinking. These are the things that... that uh, they're called non-cognitive skills. They're also called soft skills. They're also called professional skills. I've heard them called permanent skills because they, they cut across all types of work. And my contention is that these non-cognitive skills are the foundation 
for the adaptability that I was talking about. That's what you, that's what you need. If you, and if you don't have them, I suspect that most people in this room do have them. This is, uh, but if you don't have them, it's going to be extremely difficult to keep up with the pace of change. Uh, uh, Non-cognitive deficits are severe in our low-income and disadvantaged um, populations, uh, and um, they are the ones who are most at risk in this um, in this changing milieu. It's interesting looking at this pyramid because I mentioned as we talked about like the trenching for the wire to be able to have broadband across America is very similar to welding. It is a specific skill that you need to have, and you need humans there to do that. Coding, though, we're going to start to see maybe possible come down to basic skills mm -hmm. because we're seeing that you, if you have a good concept, you can ask AI to help you do the coding for you. So, I saw. I don't know if you saw this, and maybe it's an urban myth, and you can correct <laughs> we'll me. We'll solve the urban myth or, right or, here see, on stage. Or a cyber myth. Let's call it a cyber myth. But uh, about a program that will allow you to draw a web page that you, want, you would like to have exist in the world and you write in the buttons that you want and all this stuff, and then you feed it into ChatGPT, and it actually produces a working web page, or most of a working web page that then you would populate. Is that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. Jake, you've got one of those things that you can draw, and I don't. Have you tried it? You have a work assignment now to see if you can call this urban myth out. Yeah. So uh, it, maybe it's an urban myth, but I don't think it was. I think I, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure this was a reputable source. So that's the kind of thing that ChatGPT, in terms of the coding and IT world, uh, the effect that it's going to have. Now, does that reduce the need for the number of coders? Or does it put a premium on the best coders and the people who can be systems architects and think problems through from beginning to end? Uh, like many things, it's about asking the right question. Yep. Yeah. So you'll still have people asking it the wrong question and coming back with bad answers. But the more sophisticated and the more you can get the question right, the better it'll be. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's certainly true with ChatGPT. The better you are at framing your questions, the better the information is that yep. you're going to the get prompts out. Are, prompts are important. Yeah. Um, and that goes to the critical thinking kind of skills that we build at the bottom of this pyramid. Okay, so uh, this is my answer to um, what what people need to be how people need to be thinking about education and training for the future, which is that our skills are really form a kind of double helix where we've got uh, technical skills running down one side, and we've got non cognitive skills running down the other, and the two things are mutually reinforcing, right? So. Um, again, it's that idea of building a skills portfolio that has both of these present and both strong. That is the best kind of um, insulation, as it were, from uh, from a, in a change. I should say, in a changing job market. Um, the trouble is, uh, as I was explaining to my class, I'm teaching one of your classes on uh, on workforce is that whereas I can teach you, I can sit you down in a classroom or in a lab, and I can teach you a technical skill. I cannot sit you down in a classroom or in a lab and teach you a non-cognitive skill. They aren't so much taught as caught. They are absorbed 
as we go about doing everything else that we're doing, that we're developing these non-cognitive skills. So as I said before, it's like, I'm sure that for most people in this room, not a problem. You had certain advantages in life where you had the foundation that you needed in order to gain and develop your non-cognitive skills. Uh, but for disadvantaged populations, that is not the case. And it's a real challenge figuring out how it is that we're going to um, support people that lack non-cognitive skills in this new technological environment. How much of that is tr training? I mean, can you train for that? Uh, well, I would have, until two weeks ago, I would have said no. Um, uh, and this, this is there's something called Polanyi's paradox, or yeah, Polanyi's paradox, and something that has plagued the economics profession for half a century or more now, which is that uh, these kinds of tacit skills, like I know looking at your face, what you're thinking, right? <laughs> well, I doubt it. <laughs> our, 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 we have a human beings have a theory of mind about other human beings. We we have a way of projecting ourselves into. All right, so. Uh, Polanyi's paradox says that that's what's called an implicit or a tacit skill, right? So it's not something that we can even really effectively talk about, but we are absolutely dependent upon it. And you know it when it's not there. I have a friend, her name's Beth, who yells at her niece. She's like, read the room, Elizabeth. <laughs> she doesn't read the room. She's like, duh, you're never going to get anywhere in life. Read the room. Read the room, right? <laughs> so reading the room is maybe a good summary uh, skill for like the, the, that social capacity. Uh, and, um, and so uh, if you, I would have said two weeks ago, no, you can't really do much about this. You can't teach somebody how to read the room. And then, of course, AI proves me wrong. You can. There was a study done on call center employees. Uh, 5,000 major technology, uh, software firm dealing with angry customers, right? You need good non-cognitive skills to deal with angry customers because you need to be able to read the inflection in their voice gauge how frustrated they are, figure out, and then all that, while you're doing all that, you're also like trying to solve the actual problem that they have, whatever that actual problem is. So what they did was, it was 5,000 workers, half of them got uh, a chatbot to support their interactions with customers. So, uh, uh, and what they, uh, and the other half did not. They were just on their own. You know, it's business as usual. So the, the half that got the bot, uh, well, first of all, across the entire population, the overall um, productivity increase was about 14%, which is quite a bit. Um, we're struggling to get 2 3% across the economy, um, or sometimes 1%, 2% across the economy. So when you see that kind of productivity increase, you should pay attention. But then they looked at just the entry-level and lower-skilled workers, their productivity went up 35%. The, the, the large language model that is operating behind that bot was built on transcripts of conversations between customer service representatives and customers, but only the best of their customer service representatives. So 
the less skilled employee is getting all of the benefit of the much more highly skilled coworker, um, but it's in electronic form. And so productivity goes up drastically. Training time dropped from uh, a year and a half to about three months to get up to that level. That's great. That's a huge savings um, for the for the company. Customer um, uh, satisfaction scores all went up. Uh, everything got better. Nobody lost their job. And the the biggest challenge is now: what do you do with those those the best of those customer service representatives? Because when they had the bots, it actually slowed them down because they already knew how to do it. They didn't need that coach. They didn't need that angel on their shoulder telling them what to do. So it slowed them down. So what do we do with those people who could reasonably become frustrated in that situation of, uh, you know, I used to be really good at this job, and now I'm just average um, because everybody has caught up with me. The answer, I think, is uh, much like what we saw with ATMs and bank tellers is that you take those overperformers, and you move them up into more complex tasks. Um, so they're clearly probably able to do more than they are currently okay, isn't doing. Isn't that what caused the crash of 2008? They all became... <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Mortgage. Any... Yeah. any did you have uh, anything on that one? Any, any so I just I realize this, this slide is a little hard to read for, right in front of me, so, but it's worth, if you guys are interested, you know, getting this from uh, Brent's guys and, and taking a look at it. Because I do think that you know, the things that you call out in here are very interested in the whole, like you, you mentioned on the slide, the unstructured way of building gradually over time. So there's certain things that are going to be constant, like, you know, well, not even, but like, you know, there's fundamentals of science and technology, but the, you know, the social engineering elements of it. So this is a really interesting way of looking at this complex issue. I think mm -hmm. you've done a lovely job of capturing all that. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, we put it up there as a double helix because these things are intimately related um, and uh, need to be thought of as working together rather than separately. Our, because of the way our brains work, we like nice, clear distinctions, and we want to set things against each other, but they really do. Um, they really are uh, best thought of in tandem. So... That's how I get, that's my response or my solution to the, tri, to the trilemma. The solution is not either to stop, try to stop technology, pause it, stop it, uh, regulate it to death, um, because I don't think, and Shane, I would like you to comment on this, I don't think that's possible. Uh, technology is going to do what it does, uh, and it's going to get better. Uh, and we can either capture that value or not capture that value, but it's going to happen. So we can't stop it. We need to adapt to it. And it's in this double helix that we, it, we can kind of build our strategy around adaptation um, for the future, which I think is really the answer. 
to that point, I think the Eric Schmidt book um, with Henry Kissinger, and I always feel bad, I forget the last gentleman's name who probably did most of the writing, Daniel, whatever his last name yeah. is, uh, did, did a great job of saying, this is just our next level of humanity. Like, we need to stop thinking about it as a technology or the scary part of the artificial intelligence concept. It really is this gigantic leap forward that we are doing as you know, the human race. Mm -hmm. So I think when you put it in that context, it gets a lot more interesting. You want to study it more. You want to learn. You want to figure out how you can take advantage of it. And it takes some of the fear factor out, or we need to do something to kind of dissuade that fear factor. Mm -hmm. And um, I spend a lot of time looking at the regulations and what we're looking at and how we're going to manage this going forward, like the big... Uh, uh, the letter that came out, I guess, probably a month and a half ago, that's like, stop. We need us. We need just to put a hard stop on that. And you look at everybody who signed it, and I'm like, how many of these people just a are own their companies? Their CEOs can take a stop. They want to pause, go for it. You just pause your company up, right? Mm -hmm. Or you then the you know the the Senate hearing, which was interesting in that the senators actually showed up and seemed to have some semblance of understanding of what they were talking about. So kudos to them for that. But the, the whole idea of, like, the first thing was from gigantic corporations, you know, IBM being in the room. And, you know, it's, I love ChatGPT. OpenAI is doing a great job. Backed by Microsoft, who's one of the number one licensing groups in the world, was like, let's immediately license this and figure out how to take it down that software chain. And that's, that's a, it, one way to look at it. But I think when we look at it in this, the same idea, again, going back to what Eric Schmidt and, you know, the book is talking about is, we're actually, we've hit Moore's Law. We have hit the point where compute can do as much as it can with current com computers. And we need to rethink the whole process. And uh, any of you guys who are NVIDIA fans, you know, they're now hitting, you know, they're, they're at the trillion mark. And what they're thinking about is how we have to rethink compute completely. And what that will allow is not just big companies to be able to do artificial intelligence. It will allow you to borrow time against machines or actually own smarter machines that don't have to be as expensive to get this done. So I think we are on a trajectory for this to be life enhancing at, at a very minimum, if you know, not um, just very fascinating. But I do think we need to maybe help it with guardrails along the way. I don't know that, I would certainly wouldn't go the heavy regulation route, but mm -hmm. I think that's sort of the, that's the area that I'm really focusing on. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see where you see the net outcome of mm -hmm. this in the workforce and what we need to be thinking about in the guidance standards regulatory part of that equation. Yeah, and I, I, I think it would be, I'd be very interested in hearing from you. Like, when you think about the range of proposals, of regulatory approaches and proposals in Europe, United States, elsewhere in the world, like, what are the things that we absolutely should do? And what are the things that maybe, that ought to not be on the table when it comes to regulating AI? Well, so right now there's a lot of work on principles. And so the two things that are, I've always been, when I think about uh, data, which people call privacy, but it's really, I think, a data governance, it's transparency. It's knowing how the information arrived there. Is it legally yours to be playing with? And then, you know, where does it get to go from there? And taking a step away from AI for a second and into this whole privacy slash data governance debate that we're having, the challenge with it is that third party so it's one thing if you and I agree to share information or you guys agreed to share your information with AI when you joined this program. But at some point, if you were in a commercial uh, agreement and you hit that third party button where you say, sure, market to me or sell, you can send things to your partners, you, you, that is out the gate. You cannot get that back. And for a long time, I was 
like, you know, you know, it's buyer beware. But now I think we're at a stage where people really need to understand the transparency of the information. So the gathering of the information is really important. Uh, and it's also that we need not only just the legality around that, we need it for the apples to apples comparison. So uh, Brent and I had a really wonderful conversation with a woman from the Cleveland Clinic about the work she did during COVID on um, the healthcare, you know, elements that were coming in and how do they prioritize the people they were seeing, all the new symptoms, how did they manage this tranche of information coming forward? Well, there's protocols for that in healthcare, but not at the level that you would expect to see all the complications that came in on COVID. So she had to use what I'll just call the kind of break the glass moment where there were guidance and the FDA basically said, this is a health emergency and we'll let you go beyond what you regularly have to license or is standardized in the space to see if we can figure out and get ahead of this. And what we saw out of that was a much faster resolution into anyone who was willing to get a shot. So, um, you know, I, th I think we're going to see a lot in that space. What I'm worried about with Europe is they believe in principles, but in the precautionary principle. They are a do nothing before do something. And when Talk we think about the precautionary principle, what does that mean? So the precautionary principle means that you think of all the horrible things that could happen before you think of the good things. That's the easiest way to think about the precautionary principle. And then you regulate for all the horrible. Yes. And then yeah. you let risk, you know, put, lull you into a nightmare every night before you go to bed rather than waking up thinking about how you become a better society. So I'm sorry, very cynical about that. But I am very worried because we are currently seeing the this particular administration is being very permissive in letting Europe run the operation on this. And I think that that is a, means we put our foot forward on the precautionary principle and we get away from the way we do things mostly here in the United States is we are, we're not risk adverse, we are risk sensitive. People don't like to get sued. Um, we sue too much in this country as far as I'm concerned, but that's part of our way that we do contracts. So you need to do a risk evaluation and a risk balance when you do something to say, okay, how, how much positive, net positive is this that is beyond just making a profit? And who benefits from this and how many customers can I gain or who gets to be you know, the beneficiary of this? What is the downside risk on that? And then on the downside risk, we're seeing the challenges of when we're building the models that um, there are people that don't get included. And that goes back to my, a little bit of my point on data is there are people that just were excluded. They weren't part of the modeling early on. So we need to think about that. We need to be, you know, think about the ethics around that. And, and that's because we are at a point where we can build really from zero. We can decide that we wanna build this from today forward. So let's have principles that are guidance principles in this process. And so we have, can manage those risks going forward around you know, ethical behavior, um, things that are being omitted that we can add into the, the data. But it's also because you want the data sets to be good and pure and usable. If you're using really crummy data, you end up with really bad results. So that has its own market driver where the market's going to, it's just going to drive you into the ground. And so why go through all that? So, so I was just going to add on to this that, you know, the, uh, McKinsey came out with a study on like, a bunch of things related to AI, including employment, but it also had just this fascinating chart that showed if you go early on AI, if you if you aggressively pursue it, you get a very significant bump in productivity and growth uh, in your economy. If you wait and go late on it, you don't get anything, right? You could still try, you, you, could, you could deploy the same technologies later and not get anything for it. And I, that's, 
what I think the people who operate on the precautionary principle are missing, which is the, the, the loss, the unseen, the dog that doesn't bark, you know, uh, that, 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 that unaccounted for loss. It's like we see all these risks and we want to manage these risks, but we're, we've got this other huge risk over here, which is if we don't do it, uh, people are going to be poorer, sicker, uh, have less opportunity, uh, you name it. A lot, there are a lot of downsides to not acting. Which is uh, one of the things that we learned, again, speaking to this doctor at the Cleveland Clinic, of the things that when she tried to apply these lessons that she learned during COVID to other uh, health risks, there are the guidance isn't there for her to take the same risk that she could with COVID. So she talked about just the importance of you know, the, the major uh, kill, you know, things that, uh, you know, heart cancer it, why we can't take the same things that she learned during this process and then learn to implement them forward. And it's because we're dealing with old guidance and old rules. Mm -hmm. So we need to really rethink a lot of that. Um, and then the other one, and this is the one that are, people are really entangled in right now, is explainability. So how did we get there, right? You know, the, the black box element of you threw this information in there and it came out with something that made sense, but we don't know how we went, we got from A to B, right? And so with, uh, you know, where I always, when I talk to people in general about like, why are you afraid of AI? I'm like, are you scared of a calculator? Like, does this calculator, do you use one? And they usually are like, yeah. I'm like, well, we can do the backwards math. And you can show your work if you needed to when it comes to a calculator. On the AI, mm, to a point. And sometimes it just gets ahead of you. But there's also an element I really love, I'm reading a ton of books on this, is that's kind of human nature too, is sometimes you do that leap and you don't know why it's just that you've got iterative in your process and all of a sudden what makes sense to you is something that may not have made sense a year earlier but it's because you have trained your brain through it and you may have not actually cognitively thought through all the processes you did there so that explainability is going to be a bit of a hitch i think mm -hmm. that we're going to have to manage is that people want the machines to be able to explain everything again going back to this one book i think is worth reading is they talk about how they put all of the elements that are in chemical compounds in pharmaceuticals into a computer and just said go, right? They didn't tell it that it had to solve the common cold or this or that. And it came back with all these things that people had never thought about. They were like, we've always used this for liver functions. And it turns out it's actually really good at something else. And it was because the machine didn't have the trained human bias of a human training it to tell it what to think that allowed it the freedom to come back with very, very different and varied uh, answers on things. So I think the explainability has, um, is going to be a problem because as humans, we want to understand that. But I think if we allow the, the training models to move forward, we could come up with some really interesting stuff. And it's so tricky because oftentimes the designers of the <laughs> algorithms and databases can't really give you a definitive answer, even the people who built the thing. Um, so it's like, how, how much transparency or do we need into those questions in order to trust um, what it's doing? So. so the other thing you talked about is, um, and you're talking about in workforces, how do we deal with the development and deployment cycles? So, mm -hmm. and, and we're seeing a big shift in how, especially corporations are spending money in this space. And so just sort of some thoughts on, if you had to go to your CEO and say, I think we can, we, you know, how much of it has to be data-driven that you're like, I think if we put X in here, we're going to see Y at the end, or is this people dealing with hunches 
Are we dealing with certain industries that are getting there faster than others? Yeah, it's a. It, uh, it's probably in terms of my own work, kind of the area that I think is in most in need of attention, and so we're, we're working on it. But our labor market information systems in this country that attempt to project future economic demand and skill demands, uh, not very good. Surprise, surprise, not very good. So. Uh, and now we're entering into this chapter where it's going to change even faster, right? So um, working with a team, uh, labor market economists at NYU and some other people around developing concepts for basically how can we use AI to estimate the impact of AI, uh, it, to use those massive data sets um, that can create the connections between the inputs tell us what the outputs might be in terms of impact on skill demand. Um, and so that is, that is, I think, vital work. It's probably the most important work on the labor side is simply to get, we're never going to get a precise, uh, you know, uh, sort of read on what's going to happen. But we can do, I think we can do better than we are currently doing. And I think that part of that is to have the technology. And then the other, uh, to analyze the information, and then the other part is to make sure that we're applying it in a local and regional context, because every labor market is different. Everybody has different industries. Everybody has different institutions uh, operating within their, their labor market that will be affected differently by the technology. So we need to have better technology, and it needs to be decentralized so that we can get a better handle on the changing skill needs. How are we doing on time? I was going to go to questions. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, why don't we let's start in the back here, and then we've got a we're mic running, so we'll get you a mic here in just a second. There's one over here, too, on right. the left. Yep. Okay. Hi. Thank you both for sharing your insights on this topic. Can you introduce yourself and tell us Yeah, where my name from. is Aiden. Uh, I'm a senior at the University of Chicago. I'm just curious if you could touch on some of the intellectual property concerns that are raised by ChatGPT yes, and other forms of generative AI especially in relation to the data sets that they are trained on? Yeah, so I have been obsessed, and I'm actually having dinner with a group of Japanese officials tonight, that the Japanese said, go ahead and train on anything you want. We're not going to be holding you to copyright or, or IP. Or, and I was like, the Japanese, what? <laughs> so that's going to be the first question I'm going to ask them tonight. Uh, it is um, an interesting question. There are models that you can use. And so I actually, if you want to go through the um, podcast, I think our last podcast was actually with the, the former chief technology officer at the recording industry of America and talked about the fake Drake uh, situation. And it's, you know, that's a, it's, it, it's been a challenge for the music industry for a long time just because there's only so many notes and so many, you know, rhythms <laughs> that you can have there. But now that you have the ability to train, um, so I was like, so what's the music industry thinking about this? And so the, the licensed answer to that is if Warner Brothers Music or Universal would like you to b basically buy a license into their catalog and then you can do, use tool sets off of that catalog. So there's, there's a solution set to that potential question, right, for one industry. But it's a really good question because it's going to bring a lot of things uh, into question about where does copyright happen? Like we just saw a Supreme Court case, right, with the um, the Prince, the the photo that was taken of Prince that was Annie Warhol made an element of it, and um, Vanity Fair put it on the cover, but they didn't actually have rights to it. So this isn't just an AI question, but as I say about everything about the internet, 
The internet is not the problem. The internet is life on steroids, right? So it's a lot of legal questions that we probably have along the way. The, the main thing will be um, training on the learning language models and if, if you have to license into those or where does the information flow come from. So um, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for you, but there's a lot of people in not only this town, but all around the world that are asking that same question. So stay tuned. So I would only add to that, that in the call center uh, example that I talked about, it's like, who owns that IP uh, around like being a really excellent call center employee that trained the model? Who owns that? It's a bunch of people whose voices were recorded that were then used to train the model, the algorithm. Um, should those people be compensated for their artistry in a sense, in dealing with angry customers. I think that's got an economic value to it. Clearly does have an economic value to it. Uh, and it's an, I think it's an intellectual property question. Well, there's also you know, certain things that fall within the creative commons. So we are managing through that as well. But it's a, it's a question I'm very curious about and following really closely. You've got, do, who's, who's got I think, uh, Right, go ahead. Hi, my name's uh, Ethan Pelland. I'm from Arizona State University. <laughs> so go Sun Devils. Um, so my question was about thinking about the sort of experience that we've seen with social media where at first there was a lot of optimism that, and still is some optimism that social media was a way to enhance the free flow of information, especially to places and to people who either didn't have the means to access it or their governments prevented them from accessing it. How do we ensure that some of the same concerns, such as China having the firewall and having such a controlled social media environment, that the AI is used to enhance the free flow of information mm -hmm. and accurate information to people, rather than uh, having it be used to stifle the free flow of information and, or possibly to misinform people? Good question. Um, so it doesn't, it falls way beyond AI. So I actually run the um, AEI online content project. So there's a website if you want to take a look at that. And we're looking at this question very closely. There's been uh, two Supreme Court cases that were actually around Section 230, which didn't, which were sent back to the lower court. And there's two more that they're probably coming up this year. And the, the challenge for that, especially for um, areas where the internet is not abundant, is you end up with something like a meta Facebook being your main element of where you get information. There's actually going to be an interesting case because Canada, meta just said they're not going to put news feeds into the Canadian, uh, you know, their, their Canadian news feeds up in, their Canadian um, flow up in Canada because they're being sued by a bunch of the, the media companies. And the question is, who needs who more, right? You know, so... Do, do I don't get my news feeds from my social media, so I find that, that well, that's not true. I love Twitter, if, but I don't, you know, so, the, I, so I, do, I do look at that, but I generally do the click through. So what, what happens and where are there places that maybe in Latin America or, or in Africa that they're not able to do this because they're basically going to meta for this information feed? Um, that is, artificial intelligence could possibly help that, but the key question there is actually a content question, not an artificial intelligence question, is, you know, who owns, goes back to IP, to, you know, like, who owns the rights to serve that information up to you, and, you know, if they decide not to serve it to you, where does, you know, where does the harm happen in that? So, again, that you're, like, on the leading edge of a conversation. Actually, right before this, I was talking to a friend of mine who's over in Kenya, and it's interesting because she had really interesting point of view on articles I had not even heard of. 
She said, well, the, you know, the Irish uh, privacy is, group is doing a whole bunch of things. And I was like, I haven't seen that article. And she's like, oh, it's all we're talking about here in Kenya. And she's a, a, a IP privacy lawyer. And I was like, can you send me, you know, just send the link to me. So it's interesting how we have it happen to us here, even though we feel like we have the free, free flow of information that they just don't, they assume we're just not interested in certain things. And so it just gets lower in the demand. And so we don't see it come across. China is always going to be its own challenge. They, they have that firewalls real. Um, they, you, you know, they decide what you can and can't see. And if it is not something they want to do, as much as you might try to VPN around it, that eventually is not going to work out in your favor. So um, it's an ongoing question. And um, I mean, I think the, the, the ability to democratize information with the internet has been key. I think the bigger question is actually the misinformation, disinformation challenge that we have. And we're trying to get ahead of that. And that's where AI actually can be really beneficial, is trying to call that out and um, quarantine it or you know whatever at stake it at is left at that point. It, yeah. At least identify it as misinformation. Yeah, but that, but that sounds easier than it is actually to do. Yes. So yeah. there is that. We have a question over here. A couple of them, sorry. We'll start you in the, in the pink bus there. Right there. Um, you talked a little bit about this, but I was just wondering as a current college student, is there still value in approaching the fields and majors that AI dominates in? So is a math degree still worth it for the cost of education, or should we focus more on developing those skills that AI still struggles with? So I, I would say uh, the, uh, the worst possible answer is that we don't know. Uh, and uh, anybody who tells you that they have seen into this future and can definitively tell you, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it's, it, it, we just, it's, uh, the technology is changing too fast, too quickly, and it's, it's beginning to roll out into the rest of the economy and reshape the rest of the economy as well. So we don't, we don't know, and that's why I really, uh, what I fall back to is that you need a balanced portfolio of knowledge and skills. You need, uh, you do need an understanding of uh, science, of the, uh, particularly the principles behind, that, that stand behind AI uh, and how AI operates. You don't have to be a data scientist, you don't have to be an AI scientist. You just have to kind of have a a working, uh, a working person's grasp of um, what the technology is and how it works. And then on the other side, you need to make sure that you have built up uh, the, these more humane capacities so that no matter, uh, you know, in the, in the arts and in uh, the social sciences uh, or in the law or whatever it is, so that you've got both of those things because it's... It's in that combination that you have that you develop the capacity to then flex and adapt to the way that the technology is going to reshape the job market. Always good to be smart. Always good to be smart. Yeah, I, I the I ran a piece, or I had a piece published this morning on this question: is is the bachelor's degree still worth it? And the answer is yes, it's still worth it. Uh, a bachelor's degree still returns twice as much over a lifetime as somebody with less than that. Uh, uh, and at the same time, we don't really know how that, how the bachelor's degree 
over the long haul is going to interact with the technological change. To take that question down the level, there is a program actually being supported by um, you know, the U.S. government that's pushing out doing more more of this in community colleges. So the idea that you have to have a, a, a you know, four-year degree or up to do some of the things that you currently do in this space, we could be teaching at a, a much uh, earlier level that would not be at the expense, and then you could always like graduate into the higher elements. And so getting those is, and I have a friend who's doing this, they're doing a lot of work down in Texas specifically in healthcare because there's a lot of a focus on that in Houston. And it's, it just makes sense because, so there, you know, it's just fundamental coding that, you know, they maybe need to be teaching almost at the grade school, junior high, high school level. So we're seeing actually a lot of these things go down into the earlier stage of education rather than waiting to get to a point where you're actually trying to make a career decision. You, know, you should have these skill sets earlier on. There's a question over here. There. This guy yeah. in the corner. Um, Jake Bakey, St. Anselm College. My question is about what skills are teachable to adults. Um, so I'm a writing tutor at my college, and um, you know most of the people who come to us is just for a brush up or an essay they've got due for a class. But sometimes um, people go to college with a fundamental lack of writing skills, and, and I worry that it might be too late. Um, so is a is a skill like writing that normally requires um, essentially years of education to be good at, um, teachable to adults. It's never too late. I mean, it isn't. I mean, it's, it's never too late, it get, but it gets harder every year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it would be better if we could make sure that those are fundamentals that people are taught when their brains are sponges when they're young, and not everybody has the advantage of that, but nobody is ever at a full disadvantage. That's actually what I think is one of the most amazing things about the internet. Now, how many things? I mean, everybody in here probably. You guys go to YouTube before you go to somewhere else to learn something. And you know, where I'm actually going to call somebody to fix. <laughs> one of my former research assistants came over and helped me <laughs> fix a plumbing issue. He's like, "You are not paying a plumber." And I was like, "All right, you know." So we came over and we watched YouTube and we fixed it. Uh, but so that's you know, there's certain things that you know you probably have had an advantage of knowing since you were very young. The fact that you're teaching, thank you for doing that. That's it's a very important thing to pass on to people that may not have had that those skills. I mean, I've there's certain teachers I had that I wish I hadn't had, and I had others I wish would have taught every class that I had because of their teaching skills were so much better. But I think that's one of the beauties of all the different things that we have in front of us is that it's it's just never too late. I mean, people can always continue to learn. So. Uh, and I would, I would add on to that by saying uh, excellent writing is really a product of excellent thinking, right? So you're, it's not, uh, these are, uh, it's that critical thinking capacity that then feeds writing ability. Now, keep that idea in your head and remember that while ChatGPT currently produces some pretty bland stuff in terms of you know, it's, you can work with it, but it's not great. It's not beautiful writing, right? Uh, that's going to get better over time. And this is really a tough one for me because I really love to write, and it's something I have worked on very hard across my entire life to get better at. Um, and I wonder whether it's going to become like the, um, the, 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 the sculpture of the Renaissance, you know, like, it's beautiful, 
uh, it's it really wonderful, uh, but on a day-to-day basis, I have chat to do all the writing for me, you know? Um, so is it worth, for most people, if you're not gonna be a novelist or a journalist or something like that, and make writing like your fundamental, uh, the fundamental of your career, you know, is it really worth investing all of that time, energy, and effort into becoming a great writer uh, when the technology can do that for you? You have this external brain that is going to be able to do, has all of the knowledge and a lot of the skill that you're, that you're seeking. And last question over here in the corner, and then I know we're at time. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be the last question. Uh, my name is Mikhail Mikhail, also known as Mikhail, also known as Misha. I go to the University of Florida. And as uh, machine learning, AI, and algorithms are becoming ubiquitous, uh, kind of even bleeding into the hiring process, a lot of stat- uh, statist- statisticians are uh, trying to define what exactly is fairness. And there are two trains of thought. It's either equal calibration or error parity. But I would love to ask, what do you define as fairness? And is, is fairness even relevant when it comes to that? Well, I think the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission would say, yes, it is very relevant. We can't have algorithms that, by design or default, um, not intentional, but have a disparate impact on uh, uh, identifiable populations. You know, it's like the whole uh, unprofessional hair thing on Google. You know, like you type, when they had that problem where you type in unprofessional hair and you get people with afros. And uh, that was a product of the implicit biases of the people who built the technology. And so things like that have to be tested for. Now, having said that, we don't have an unbiased process right now in hiring. We have a very biased process in hiring. Uh, And so it's kind of like, uh, yes, there's there's a danger of bias in these uh, programs that are being used for HR purposes. Um, but we have to very carefully weigh which is worse, you know, the, the existing way that we have to do it or this new way, or are they bad in different ways and then mitigate against whatever the problem is. So uh, Shane talked about lawsuits. Lawsuits are an extremely important part of the regulatory process because they, they signal to the market, this is what you can't do, and get, or if you do do it, you're going to get sued and lose a lot of money. Just to show you how far we've come on fairness, it used to be that if a female walked into a bank and asked for a loan and she was declined and they were told why, they said, because you're a woman. So we, we've come a long way, but our challenge now is those unintended biases that we don't know and then get coded in. Because we just uh, there's a lot of assumption and code, which seems crazy, because it's code. But um, so we need to train ourselves as humans to think about what we're doing in that space and, and openly. But so yeah, there's there's still a lot of running room there. But it's we need to be cognitive of what how we're doing that in the system. Thank you all for your attention during this. Um, I hope you will follow up with any questions that you yeah, have. Absolutely. Um, we appreciate you being part of this program, and you're eventually all going to be uh, listeners on a podcast. thank you for joining us on this episode of hardly working i'm your host brent orrell and i hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in america 
Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.